This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. My name is Tommy Doolin, and I'm a cardiac electrophysiologist here at UCSF. And it is my distinct pleasure to introduce my colleague, Dr. Greg Marcus. Dr. Marcus is a professor of medicine and is the Associate Chief of Cardiology for Research. He truly is a world-renowned clinical investigator and has published nearly 300 peer-reviewed papers. And in addition, Dr. Marcus is a highly skilled and experienced cardiac electrophysiologist. Now, as students of medicine, I am sure you have seen or will shortly appreciate that in healthcare, we often use seemingly complex jargon to describe fairly simple things. So in this case, a cardiac electrophysiologist is a heart rhythm specialist. We are, in essence, electricians of the heart. To put this career pathway into perspective, uh, it involves four years of medical school, uh, three years of internal medicine, three years of general cardiology, and then two years specifically devoted uh, to the diagnosis and treatment of heart rhythm abnormalities. So with that, I wanted to hand things over to Dr. Marcus, who will be speaking to us this evening about atrial fibrillation. Thank you so much for the kind introduction. Tommy, uh, and welcome everyone. We're very excited to have you all here and hope to provide some interesting and hopefully useful information and get started on this talk, which is going to focus on atrial fibrillation. And uh, this was largely motivated by the fact there's been so many advances in atrial fibrillation. I've given a talk in this uh, sort of setting before, which as many of you may know, Uh, leads to a presentation on YouTube. Um, And many of my patients tell me they've seen some of these talks and I have become very aware that my last talk, which I, uh, on this subject in this forum, uh, which I believe was in 2015 is now uh, woefully uh, out of date. Um, Also, we and others have contributed uh, novel uh, findings regarding the roles of alcohol, caffeine, of course, Apple watches and their, um, uh, relationship to atrial fibrillation is a, is a new development pertinent to many. So we thought this would be a hopefully, again, useful and interesting talk. Oftentimes people gloss right over their uh, disclosure slides, but I think given the nature of this um, kind of direct uh, interaction with the public, I think it's worth spending a little bit of time on these disclosures so that these are clear. I've received research from the NIH uh, from a not-for-profit called the Patient-Centered Out- Outcomes Research Institute, uh, another taxpayer-funded entity focused on uh, tobacco-related research in California, that's TRDRP. I have received funding from a, a private for-profit company called Bayless. They make um, tools specifically related to one, generally, one part of the catheter ablation procedure where we cross from the right atrium to the left atrium. I'll touch on that briefly. I've been a consultant for a startup company called Encarta Therapeutics. They make an inhaled therapeutic uh, in the hopes of uh, essentially delivering drugs directly to the heart through the lung to convert atrial fibrillation. I'm also a consultant for Johnson & Johnson. Uh, That's related to work on a steering committee related to a randomized trial. I also do hold stock in in Carta Therapeutics as I, in fact, helped to found that company. I'm not going to be talking about that technology or that approach, uh, although happy to answer questions if that's of interest. 
about it uh, given time. And perhaps especially uh, important and especially related to what will end up being the towards the end of the talk, I have not received any funding from the food and beverage industry, uh, which I know can be an issue uh, when it comes to, to those things. So I certainly have no conflicts there. Okay, so jumping right into this common rhythm disturbance called atrial fibrillation, what is it? So in order to understand what it is, it's really imp important to first understand what the normal electrical condition of the heart is or normal sinus rhythm shown here on the left, which originates in a structure in the right upper chamber, the right atrium called the sinus node. That fires about 60 times per minute, but it can fire 80 times per minute, 90 times a minute. It is sensitive to adrenaline, so it goes up with more adrenaline, which can happen with exercise uh, or excitement or anxiety, et cetera. And then that electrical signal propagates through uh, the muscle cells of the top two chambers, the right atrium and the left atrium, they're all electrically connected. However, the atria are not usually directly electrically connected to the lower chambers, the ventricles. Here we have the right ventricle and the left ventricle. Uh, the heart valves, two of them are kind of in the way and they do not conduct electricity. So in the great majority of cases, there's a rare circumstance I'll mention in a second. In the great majority of circumstances, the only way for that electrical impulse to get from the atrium to the ventricles is through this structure called the AV node uh, that then leads to what's called the bundle of Hiss, uh, which is a specialized conduction system that then breaks into the left bundle and the right bundle. Those then lead to these Purkinje fibers that permeate the ventricles and activate, uh, electrically activate the ventricles, which, which subsequently leads to their um, muscular contraction. The one rare case uh, that we also treat as electrophysiologists um, where the atria are directly connected to the ventricle is when there's a little thin piece of muscle that's just left over from uh, development in the womb and that can lead to other arrhythmias. Uh, that can lead to something or is associated with something called the Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome which will not be a focus of the current talk, but again, happy to answer questions about that if people uh, are curious. So in contrast to this, we consider the condition of atrial fibrillation where the top chambers are very rapidly uh, contracting in a chaotic, unpredictable fashion. Um, but the AV node, the Hisperkinji system, the ventricles are still intact uh, and they are responding as I will describe uh, to the atrial fibrillation. So in terms of the general outline for this talk, uh, we'll, I'll focus on a little bit of epidemiology, then talk about how we make a diagnosis of atrial fibrillation. That will be pertinent to the role of the Apple Watch and its, its technologies or, or capabilities, as well as some other smartwatches. And then what are the consequences of atrial fibrillation? Then a bit about how do we treat it? Uh, and then how do we prevent it, which is a new uh, sort of way to think about atrial fibrillation, and which is especially pertinent, it turns out, to lifestyle factors. And this is where I will discuss the role of alcohol and caffeine. Now, as we think about this common uh, rhythm disturbance, it's important to have some, to, to establish some definitions and really a key feature of it, which is that it can be intermittent. We call that paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, or it can be consistent or persistent which is the formal name, 
Previously, what we now refer to as persistent atrial fibrillation, meaning it is just going to continue unless we actively do something to stop it, uh, was also called chronic atrial fibrillation. There's another category called permanent atrial fibrillation, which as implied means that atrial fibrillation is just going to continue on uh, forever. And really that mainly occurs when there's a decision made ideally uh, in partnership between the patient and the treating physician that we're just gonna allow the atrial fibrillation to persist without uh, any intended interruption. Now, importantly, the same patient can have paroxysmal and pers persistent atrial fibrillation at different times. So they may have an episode that is persistent and we shock them out of it back to a normal rhythm. Then they have a paroxysm that lasts an hour. So it's not that, although patients tend to be either paroxysmal or persistent uh, most of the time, certainly the same patient can experience both uh, conditions. So in terms of the epidemiology, the main point is that atrial fibrillation is very common, certainly more than 5 million cases, probably now around 10 million in the US alone, expected to be 12 million, probably more by 2030. Uh, again, uh, the lower end of the estimate is that there are 50 million cases around the world. Once a person hits the age of 40, the lifetime risk of subsequently developing atrial fibrillation is one in four. So what are the risk factors for this? Age is probably the most potent risk factor. As we grow older, we all are at a heightened risk for atrial fibrillation. So if you have a room uh, where everyone is at least 60 years of age, about 5%, if not more of them, have atrial fibrillation. A room uh, filled with octogenarians and older, uh, at least 10% of them will have atrial fibrillation. Family history of atrial fibrillation is an important risk factor, but it's not a classic Mendelian sort of uh, inheritance. So it's not that well, my dad had it, therefore I have a 50% chance of getting it. It's not that simple. It's much more varied and complex than that and actually depends on the family. There are many genes that may be responsible for atrial fibrillation and some families have been described where it really is Mendelian. It really is a 50% chance of getting AFib if one parent has it. In most cases, it's what we call polygenic, meaning due to uh, a combination of probably many, many common genetic variants. And it's not that someone is absolutely destined to get atrial fibrillation or destined to never experience atrial fibrillation, but rather dials up or down the susceptibility. And there's almost certainly environmental factors that then interact uh, with that propensity to render one more or less prone to atrial fibrillation. So other common uh, risk factors uh, include European ancestry. So Dr. Duland and I have published fairly extensively on that subject. Those with higher blood pressure, diabetes, heart failure, coronary artery disease, including a history of a heart attack. Those with obstructive sleep apnea, those are all, all increase the risk. And then we're recognizing more and more that there are these more readily, available, uh, readily modifiable risk factors such as obesity and alcohol use. And we'll dive uh, more into that later. And then there are these kind of special circumstances. So there are some conditions where atrial fibrillation might be reversible. Uh, hyperthyroidism. So when the thyroid gland is overactive, uh, certainly that's associated with a heightened risk of atrial fibrillation. 
And there's some evidence, although frankly, that it's not super robust, that once that hyperthyroidism is, is treated, that the atrial fibrillation may resolve. Post open heart surgery uh, really substantially increases the risk for atrial fibrillation. So of everyone undergoing open heart surgery without any history of atrial fibrillation, 20 to 30% of them will exhibit, will develop atrial fibrillation during their recovery, usually occurs about three to four days later. And the thinking is, and the evidence suggests that in most of those cases, it actually will resolve. Uh, we still don't fully understand their long-term risks of atrial fibrillation. Um, and then pericarditis, which is inflammation uh, of the heart lining, uh, which I think has become, uh, uh, folks have become more aware of it because of myocarditis related to COVID and COVID vaccines. Pericarditis is related to that similarly may represent a reversible cause of atrial fibrillation. Now also people can certainly develop atrial fibrillation in the absence of all of these risk factors. And that represents about 30% of all cases. So some people, uh, young, not, none of the um, characteristics I just described can yet still develop atrial fibrillation. This is sometimes called lone atrial fibrillation. There is pretty good evidence that those individuals probably have more of a genetic propensity to developing uh, the disease. Okay, so now we will move into the consequences of this common arrhythmia. This is a general outline for the consequences and then I will uh, dig in a little bit more, especially on bullets one and three. So we worry about reduced quality of life. People can be quite symptomatic. Adverse remodeling of the heart, um, usually this is attributed to prolonged fast ventricular rates or, or a fast pulse uh, that can lead to weakening of the heart. There's some more recent evidence that even in the setting of a normal heart rate, um, such as uh, when atrial fibrillation is treated with medicines, that the heart may still adversely remodel. By adverse remodeling, I mean can become larger, can become weaker, can be more prone to heart failure more prone to valve leaky valves as that heart kind of gets larger and the, the valves are unable to close as well as they otherwise would. And then very important, we worry about something called thromboembolism. So thrombo refers to the formation of a thrombus or a blood clot. And then embolism means anything that is traveling in the bloodstream from one place to the other. And what can happen is these clots can travel from the heart and they're formed in the setting of atrial fibrillation and travel to some blood vessel, block it, occlude uh, uh, blood flow and, and, and oxygen, starving that tissue that receives that blood flow of oxygen, leading to cell death. The most feared complication here is stroke. If we put a catheter in the atrium, one of the top chambers, when someone is in atrial fibrillation, the rate is incredibly fast. This uh, little strip here is actually from a pacemaker lead that's sitting in an atrium atri uh, in a patient with atrial fibrillation. Oftentimes you can count these going more than 400 beats per minute, 500, 600 beats per minute. The if the ventricles go that fast, that is not compatible with life uh, unless maybe you're a hummingbird, but certainly not in humans. And so one of the important consequences of going so fast in the atria is you lose the normal blood flow, the usual atrial kick, and therefore blood stagnates. And whenever blood sits still in one place, it is prone to forming a thrombus or a clot. 
And there's one part of the, the atria that's especially um, vulnerable to this, and that's this structure called the left atrial appendage. It is literally an appendage that comes off the left atrium. This is a what's called a transesophageal echocardiogram uh, with a view of the left atrial appendage. So the esophagus is the swallowing tube, which is in the back part of the chest behind the heart. The left atrium actually is a little bit behind the right atrium. The right atrium is towards the front of the chest, the left atrium towards the back. And so we don't get a great view of the left atrium when we put an ultrasound probe right on the chest wall. But if we have the patient swallow that probe or under anesthesia, advance that probe, we can get a very clear, beautiful view of the left atrium and especially the left atrial appendage. So this is showing blood clots in the left atrial appendage in a patient uh, with atrial fibrillation. It's important to mention a concept because this is what I just described is the classic sort of reasoning used to explain why atrial fibrillation, which leads to stagnation of blood flow because of the rapid rate, then leads to blood clots. This then leads to a common question that patients ask me all the time, very understandable and very intuitive. And there's a somewhat counterintuitive answer to that question, which is why it's now important to skip ahead a little bit to treatments, which I will come back to. And that is a common question is, okay, I see what you're saying, AFib leads to this blood clot, that's what leads to the stroke. So if we don't allow my atria to fibrillate, we keep my heart in normal rhythm, that should be enough to prevent those clots, right? But it actually doesn't, at least in many patients. It just uh, hasn't been shown to be true. And I'll talk a bit more about that when it comes to treatments. The thing that prevents the clots are blood thinners. Now, again, that's counterintuitive given what I just said. So there's perhaps a useful way to think about this, which I believe is almost certainly operative, at least in some patients, I can't say all patients, but it may be that there are some atria that are prone to forming blood clots in the left atrial appendage because there's some scar tissue there, for example. Those same atria, are also prone to fibrillating. So in those cases, the atrial fibrillation may be more of an epiphenomenon or a marker to say, hey, this is an atria that's, that's prone to forming a blood clot. And in that circumstance, getting rid of the AFib, suppressing the AFib is not gonna be sufficient to prevent the blood clot. And I have seen this in some of my patients. I think the reality is there's probably a spectrum and that's the case in some cases. There are other cases where it clearly really is directly related to the AFib. The other issue is that as I described, the AFib itself can lead to remodeling and for example, enlargement of the atria and may itself over time uh, change the characteristics of the atria to make them more prone to, to uh, clotting. So this is clearly not a straightforward uh, issue, but very important to, to appreciate. Okay, now I talked about that AV node. So one of the key characteristics of the AV node is that it just can't conduct that fast. It cannot conduct more than 400 beats per minute. And this may be something that we evolved uh, to prevent, otherwise uh, humans would die when they had atrial fibrillation. The AV node in this case really saves, saves us in that it generally will conduct maybe 100, 110, 120, 130 beats per minute during atrial fibrillation, certainly very much compatible with life. 
uh, although perhaps the ventricles will go fast enough to make the person not feel well. Uh, but atrial fibrillation, importantly, is not generally an imminently dangerous rhythm. It's not a true emergency, largely thanks to this AV node. Now, the AV node is heavily influenced by what we call autonomic tone, um, which is this tension or balance or harmony between this, the, the adrenaline side of the nervous system, which is called the sympathetic nervous system, versus the vagal side, which is also called the parasympathetic nervous system, which slows things down. So one, if one had a lot of vagal tones, such as they're resting, they just had a big meal, the AV node will be relatively slow. That person may be in atrial fibrillation with a ventricular rate, which will result in the pulse of about 80 beats per minute. Then they run up the stairs. They hear the phone ringing and the phone happens to be upstairs. They run up the stairs, they get more adrenaline. And suddenly, whereas in normal sinus rhythm, their heart rate might go 110, 120. Now it's going 160, 170 due to the AFib. Now the ventricles, um, which generate the pulse, will not only beat faster than usual, they'll also beat irregularly. So that this irregularly irregular pattern, it really is random, is very characteristic of atrial fibrillation. So another consequence of all of that is that this, co this combination of uh, loss of the atrial kick, as well as the ventricles beating uh, a bit fast, as well as beating irregularly, that all leads to less ventricular filling and a reduction in ventricular output or cardiac output. And all of that can lead to various symptoms, including um, fatigue, shortness of breath, um, chest discomfort, uh, palpitations, just uh, uh, feeling faint, and sometimes just not feeling well. Uh, interestingly, some people are completely asymptomatic, and we don't, we still don't completely understand why that is. Um, and then even the people who swear they know when they're in atrial fibrillation because they have symptoms, if you put monitors on them, in many cases, you will find they're having asymptomatic episodes. So in terms of the uh, diagnosis, we use the electrocardiogram. So there's a picture here, the electrocardiogram, a very common test, very quick. It's when they put uh, stickers or electrodes on your chest that they connect to wires. And in normal sinus rhythms shown here on the top, we are looking for these, um, these little waves that are marked by these asterisks, which we call the P wave. And that represents the organized conduction of the atria. And then with the solid, solid arrows, these larger, more rapid, more rapid waves are called the, the QRS complexes. Those represent conduction of the ventricles. They're rapid because this His bundle branch Purkinje network conducts very rapidly. And they, you'll notice they're quite, these QRS complexes are much bigger than the P waves because the ventricles generally have a lot more meat. So they're much more um, uh, substantial than the relatively smaller atria. Of note, this wave marked by this dashed arrow is called a T wave, and that represents the electrical repolarization of the ventricles, which then might uh, lead to the question, well, what about electrical repolarization of the atria? It is there, but it's very hard to see, again, partly because the atria are much smaller and partly because it occurs in the, probably is buried largely in the QRS. Now, in contrast to this, we look at an electrocardiogram in the setting of atrial fibrillation. 
where we will have an absence of these P waves. So the underlying baseline is somewhat undulating. Now you may notice the T waves and think, oh wait, how do you know those aren't P waves? But they're broader than the P wave. They reliably follow the QRS complexes. And then the QRS complexes, again, representing ventricular contraction are more rapid and they are irregularly irregular. And this electrocardiogram, which we also refer to as an ECG or from the German EKG, is the gold standard, really the only way to definitively make a diagnosis of atrial fibrillation. So this brings us to smartwatches and uh, some of the new technologies that are designed specifically to identify individuals with atrial fibrillation. And to talk about how that's done, which I, I think is important to understand the limitations of these smartwatches, we can consider this kind of uh, classic picture of a monitor that you all may have seen on yourselves, family members, certainly on TV, anytime you're in the emergency room, certainly the intensive care unit, uh, the hospital undergoing a procedure, you'll see something like this. And to hone in on these two kind of rows, um, so this bottom row represents a signal from a device called a pulse oximeter. This is the thing with a usually red light uh, that's placed on typically a finger, could be placed on an earlobe or a toe. And the purpose of this is to infer the oxygenation of the blood. So what it's doing is shining a light uh, and then it's, it has a little camera and it's looking at how that light is reflected and the way the light is reflected or the amount of light reflected is influenced by the amount of oxygen. Um, and then the EKG we already talked about, that's this top part. Now, Smartwatches take advantage of the uh, fact that there is a fairly prominent pulse right where that where watches tend to sit, this radial pulse as, as shown in this middle picture. And on the back of smartwatches that are that report heart rates, so Apple watches, Samsung devices, Fitbits, they are using the same light-based sensor called a uh, called photoplethysmography, re uh, referred to in short as PPG. It's the same technology used in a pulse oximeter where it's shining a light and looking at how that light is reflected back. Now, although Apple Watches now ostensibly can uh, report on oxygen saturation, it's actually looking at the waveform change over time to infer the heart rate. So generally these smartwatches are again using this light-based sensor on the, the back that is inferring the pulse from the changes in the light waveform. Um, so it's not generally, um, certainly when it's reporting heart rate, it's not using anything electrical. It's not inferring anything from the actual EKG, just from this pulse waveform. So one important and fairly common way that it can be fooled is if someone has fairly frequent early heartbeats, such as something called a premature ventricular contraction or a PVC that sometimes can occur early enough that it doesn't generate a particularly strong pulse. So I will see patients, for example, with frequent PVCs that will say, yeah, my smartwatch told, you know, said my heart rate was 25, when in fact their heart rate is 50, but every other beat uh, is a PVC. So similarly, we can infer or this is the idea, the presence or absence of atrial fibrillation, given the nature of the waveform. And this is 
some raw data that we collected as part of a, a research study. Um, so this is sinus rhythm. This is the photoplethysmography waveform in normal rhythm. And this is it in atrial fibrillation. And in fact, we, um, before Apple and Fitbit developed this uh, themselves, we actually published the first study to demonstrate that yes, indeed, a smartwatch, and we did use Apple Watches. This was in collaboration with some data scientists that subsequently spun out a company called Cardiogram. They employed a machine learning algorithm uh, that we trained based on patients with and without atrial fibrillation. We tested this in people undergoing cardioversion procedures uh, where it proved to be highly accurate, although that was a really controlled, careful setting. And then we tested it in an ambulatory population where we noted it was not, it still was better than flipping a coin, but it wasn't terrific at detecting atrial fibrillation. And then subsequent to that, companies got really interested in doing this themselves. There have been uh, published studies now from Apple, from Fitbit, uh, and from Samsung. The Samsung study, by the way, was done by our group, led by our chief of cardiology, uh, Jeff Olgan. Now, you might think, okay, good, then we're gonna detect more atrial fibrillation, you said that it can be asymptomatic. You said that it can lead to stroke and blood thinners prevent stroke. So isn't this all good? Uh, we're gonna detect people who don't know they have AFib and that indeed motivated our original study. Interestingly though, there's really no uh, consensus that there should be, at least from professionals and from scientists and from clinicians, there's no consensus that we should be conducting population-based screening for atrial fibrillation among everyone. Um, now, why is that? So uh, this brings us to this concept that we all learn in medical school that I think is really useful to, to share and to try to communicate. And frankly, this is all pertinent to really any sort of evaluation of a medical test and what we call the test characteristics. So we, this is very classic in any sort of epidemiology course or, or medical, medical student course. We learn about this two by two table where you uh, imagine the disease here in the columns, uh, presence or absence of a disease, and you're evaluating a test, whether it's positive or negative. And we tend to talk a lot about the sensitivity, which is the true positives uh, or A here over the true positives plus the false negatives. And the specificity, which is kind of the reciprocal, which is the true negatives over the false positives plus the true negatives. And these are not influenced by how common the disease is, which makes sense because within this column on the left, they all got the disease. This column on the right, they all don't have the disease. But the reality is that when we are in clinical practice and we are confronting a patient with a positive test, we by definition do not know if they already have the disease or not. So these things, sensitivity and specificity, they can be used in a research study where you have some reference gold standard that everyone is subjected to. But in clinical medicine, we have to think about these other types of characteristics that are um, come from evaluating the rows here rather than the columns. Again, I'm confronted with a positive test. I'm interested in the positive predictive value, which in this case is A over A plus B. Another way to say that is, given a positive test, what is the likelihood that test is true? And what's important related to screening is that these characteristics in the rows, these 
predictive values are highly influenced by disease prevalence. And that's just the reality. So I'll give you a example. So let's imagine we have a test that is highly accurate. So 95% sensitive and specific, which as far as medical tests go, that's really pretty good. But the prevalence of the disease is about 1%. And it's not unrealistic to imagine that in a population uh, of people wearing smartwatches, which is probably will skew a little younger and healthier than the, even the general population, about 1% is probably right. Mathematically, given that prevalence and these outstanding test characteristics, if you calculate the positive predictive value, it will be 15%. What does that mean? That means that 85% of those tests will be false positives. So this is one of the reasons that no professional society has come out to say, yep, we should screen everyone for atrial fibrillation because there's gonna be a lot of false positives. Now you might say, so what? What's, so what? what, why does that matter? Well, that's gonna to lead to a lot of unnecessary anxiety, almost certainly quite a bit of unnecessary healthcare utilization and even potentially uh, unnecessary and even inappropriate prescription of anticoagulants, which in general, can provide a lot of benefit to properly selected people with AFib, but in healthy people, there's a risk of, well, in everyone, there's a risk of bleeding. And if you give it to enough people, some are gonna experience bleeding where they never really should have received that drug in the meantime. So um, I was asked to write a commentary on this for uh, Nature Review's uh, cardiology and, and pointed this phenomenon out, this kind of new era we're in where if you consider the conventional way this works, which I um, went through on the left, where we first perform scientific research, that undergoes peer review, that is then disseminated, leads to expert consensus, that informs clinicians, and the clinicians inform the patients and the general public. Now we have this very interesting situation where we have private industry marketing devices that are making diagnoses of a disease, atrial fibrillation, directly to patients. There's no intermediary here of uh, scientists, clinicians, professional societies. At the same time, of course, we're trying to do the research to inform these things, uh, but we're, we are stuck uh, with this situation. I've argued that we need to do a better job educating the public, hence uh, a big part of the motivation for this very talk. Uh, and I think um, understanding what is atrial fibrillation, why do we care, what do we do about it uh, is really critical and becoming more critical given the presence of these devices. Now, there's a, a bit more to say uh, about them, and that is that they sometimes are accompanied with the actual ability to obtain an EKG, such as many Apple Watches now. Uh, this is also, uh, uh, on the left, is what's called a cardiomobile device, uh, which is not a smart watch per se, but is a separate handheld device. They now have a, a credit card sort of device that you can hold that has electrodes that pairs with a, a mobile app. There are algorithms that will read these EKGs. They're imperfect, but the EKGs can be saved and sent to providers. Um, and the algorithms are almost certainly accurate if they indicate a normal rhythm. Now this does raise the issue of potential problems inundating providers with a lot of strips, but uh, this may be especially useful um, for rhythms beyond atrial fibrillation. So the, the algorithms in general using the light-based sensor, they will just comment on AFib or something nonspecific or normal. 
Whereas the EKG, the algorithms won't necessarily call the specific abnormal heart rhythm. But again, if those PDFs can be saved and shared with a healthcare professional, diagnoses, diagnoses uh, can be made. And in fact, this is where I think these devices are pretty clearly useful. And that's in patients with an established diagnosis. So if you have a population of people who already have received a diagnosis of atrial fibrillation, then your prevalence is very high. So false positives for the same mathematical reasons I just described are much lower. This can help people with atrial fibrillation decide when to take what's called a pill in the pocket. So some, some patients are prescribed a medicine to take to convert their AFib, but the symptoms aren't always clear. Someone may just feel a little off uh, or a little anxious and they're not sure, is this my AFib or am I just feeling this way? Is it worth taking one of these pills? These, these devices may be helpful there. Or to determine if a particular drug they're taking on a daily basis is working, whether they should have another catheter ablation procedure or to identify various triggers. Oh, it's when I consume alcohol. Yeah, the device really is showing uh, atrial fibrillation. So moving on now to uh, various treatments for atrial fibrillation. So there's a big sort of dichotomy here. These things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, but uh, we often discuss them that way. And that is what we would refer to as rate control, meaning allow that person to remain in atrial fibrillation uh, versus rhythm control, meaning try to get them out of AFib and keep them out of AFib. Rate control, the, the goal is really to work on that AV node, make sure it's not allowing the AFib to make the ventricles go too fast. Now, there were several um, randomized trials that were done now about 20 years ago that counterintuitively perhaps failed to demonstrate a clear benefit of the rhythm control strategy, meaning the let's get rid of the AFib and try to suppress it over rate control. However, uh, there are several limitations to those studies that are worth emphasizing. So first, there wasn't really any evidence that the people who underwent the rhythm control generally did worse, so they were considered fairly equivalent. Second, the means to maintain sinus rhythm were suboptimal. We generally recognize that this was before catheter ablation, and many of these people were not necessarily treated by electrophysiologists that understand the various nuances of various drugs available to suppress AFib. It's also very likely that the most symptomatic patients were not enrolled. If you're a treating physician and you have a patient that you know feels horrible in atrial fibrillation, feels great in sinus rhythm, you're not gonna uh, be very likely to encourage them to enroll in this randomized study. Um, most of the studies were quite small and then the duration of follow-up may have been insufficient to really see the adverse consequences over time. Now, a really important lesson from these trials that relates back to my initial discussion of the formation of blood clots in atrial fibrillation is that a normal sinus rhythm strategy is clearly not sufficient for stroke prevention. So how do we know that? Because in these trials, especially the main one that's called AFFIRM, per the protocol, if someone was randomly assigned to rhythm control and they came back to clinic and yes, they were in normal rhythm, the practitioner could stop their blood thinner. And it turns out that their stroke, stroke rate was the same as the people in atrial fibrillation. Now, you could argue that, well, but it was still lower because they were off anticoagulation. And indeed, there's been a question, well, if you have normal rhythm plus 
anticoagulation, would that really knock down the rate of strokes and other thromboemboli? And indeed that ends up being true. So mo much more recently, uh, this trial was published, uh, really the first in, in many years to revisit this question of rhythm control versus rate control in the modern era with ablation, with electrophysiologists caring for these patients. And really importantly, with the idea that anticoagulation or blood thinning would be continued even in the people randomly assigned to a normal rhythm. And they found that really in every outcome, there was uh, less problems in the people randomly assigned to the rhythm control, meaning the let's try to prevent AFib uh, arm. The, the main outcome that was statistically significant was a composite, but really each of these is lower. So there was less death, that was statistically significant, less stroke, interestingly, despite the fact that everyone got blood thinners, um, less hospitalization, uh, either for heart failure or essentially uh, a heart attack. Okay, but sometimes a rate control strategy is still reasonable, uh, depending on various factors. And we are slowly moving towards a rhythm control as more of a first line. One of the important caveats of that study I just described is that these were in people with relatively new atrial fibrillation. And the one thing uh, that everyone has in, in our field of electrophysiology has agreed is it makes sense to pursue a normal rhythm control strategy in people who have symptoms in the setting of atrial fibrillation. Okay, so if we imagine we've decided we're gonna do rate control, we're not gonna to try to suppress the atrial fibrillation or we can't suppress the atrial fibrillation, which does sometimes happen. There are a couple of drugs to help slow the AV node. Those include beta blockers. These are these medicines that end in olol, like metoprolol, tenolol, et cetera. Calcium channel blockers can do the same, specifically diltiazem and verapabil, not all calcium channel blockers per se. Both of these classes of drugs do decrease blood pressure. So that can be sort of a win-win when a patient already has high blood pressure, but can be limiting or problematic in people whose blood pressure is too low. Digoxin uh, is also useful here, perhaps is considered more second line because it doesn't work as well. Also, it may actually promote atrial fibrillation in those who have intermittent episodes, uh, which is less of an issue in people who are in persistent atrial fibrillation. Now, all of these drugs, they work on the AV node to slow it. That's the intention. When someone's in normal rhythm, they will also slow the sinus node. So this can be a problem when someone's in and out of atrial fibrillation. They're going too fast in atrial fibrillation. Hence, we give them these drugs to slow them down. Then they convert to normal rhythm. And now they're going too slow in a normal rhythm. Usually that's not dangerous per se, but people can feel really tired because they can't mount and mount an adequate heart rate response to exercise. Sometimes people can pass out uh, it, when they convert from atrial fibrillation and it takes a while for that sinus node to recover. This is something called tachybrady syndrome or too fast, too slow syndrome. And that is a indication for a pacemaker, uh, which works very well to, uh, to assess, to address the slow uh, rate. And I wanna talk about the pacemaker because of that and also another solution for many with atrial fibrillation. So uh, putting in a pacemaker is very straightforward. It does not uh, entail having to open the chest. We make a very small incision 
um, in the upper chest, just down to the muscle layer, just under the skin, we make a little pocket. We go into a vein here, much the same way that we go into a vein in the legs to do a catheter ablation, or an operator might go into an artery to do an angiogram. The, the way we do that is usually now under ultrasound or some other sort of visualization, we'll place a, a needle into the vein, get a little blood back, put a wire through that needle, take the needle out and put a little plastic tube, essentially kind of like a large IV over that wire, take the wire out, and then we can introduce either catheters or in this case, pacemaker leads that look like this um, through those veins down into the heart under x-ray guidance. We then, um, there are a number of ways to then fixate those leads to the heart uh, via, uh, for example, a screw, uh, that we can deploy with a wrench on the outside of the lead. We connect the leads to this generator, tuck it in that pocket and sew it up. Uh, but essentially this is a very common uh, straightforward procedure. Now, in general, all a pacemaker can do is prevent the heart from going too slow. It just paces the heart, activates the heart, preventing it from going too slow. It doesn't really otherwise slow down rhythms that are too fast like atrial fibrillation. There's one exception, and that is when patients have something called atrial flutter, which is related to atrial fibrillation, but is a more organized single circuit. There is one type of pacemaker where in the, the lead in the upper chamber, so this lead, by the way, is in the right atrium, this lead is in the right ventricle, it can sense that fast rhythm, pace a little faster, and sometimes help break that circuit in the setting of atrial flutter. Now, this is pertinent to this talk on atrial fibrillation, partly because of that tacky Brady syndrome I described, but also because of this very straightforward procedure called an AV node or AV junction ablation. So this is when we have a patient that uh, we're trying to rate control and we can't because the medicines aren't working. Sometimes we pile on these medicines, their, their pulse is still too fast or their blood pressure is just too low on those medicines. Or sometimes these are patients where we've really tried to suppress the atrial fibrillation, but the medicines don't work. We try catheter ablation, doesn't work, or things aren't tolerated. Then we place a pacemaker, as I just described, and we do this actually very simple procedure where we go in with a catheter and burn the AV node, which essentially electrically disconnects the top chambers, the atria, from the ventricles. So we allow the patient to be in atrial fibrillation, but the ventricles, the pulse, they just don't know it. They're, and they never go too fast and they don't beat irregularly. They are, however, then dependent on the pacemaker. Now I should mention the first ablation ever done in a human uh, for an arrhythmia uh, was done by uh, Dr. Mel Scheinman, uh, a colleague of Dr. Doolin's and myself, and really a mentor of ours. And it was done at UCSF uh, in uh, 1982. Uh, and it was this procedure. They used a different form of energy, but it was essentially this AV junction or AV node uh, ablation. Okay, so moving on to other therapies and imagining now we do want to obtain and maintain a normal rhythm. So a common way to do this in those with persistent atrial fibrillation, so it's not breaking, it's they're not reverting on their own to normal rhythm is to do what's called a cardioversion. So this is the same procedure you see on TV where they put on pads and they yell clear and they deliver a shock. That is usually in the scenario of a, of a ventricular arrhythmia, a deadly arrhythmia. In this case, this is very elective, very calm. We really do yell clear 
uh, after charging uh, and before we shop. Uh, but it's a very common procedure. We often do four of the, these on a, any given day uh, at UCSF and hospitals all over do this frequently. Uh, it works very well to convert someone from atrial fibrillation to a normal rhythm, but it doesn't do anything to prevent the atrial fibrillation from coming back. The most important determinant of the success tends to be how long the atrial fibrillation has been going on. So if it's been present for years and years and years, sometimes even the cardioversion doesn't work. We can sometimes facilitate that by adding medication, sometimes trying an ablation, but it usually works. And the challenge tends to be the recurrence of the atrial fibrillation uh, down the line. And that brings us to various drugs called antiarrhythmic drugs that are designed specifically to suppress the atrial fibrillation. Uh, there are several, they all have their pros and cons. None of them work perfectly. Of course, for any given individual, they may work especially well, but in a general population with atrial fibrillation, you, you give these drugs, 50 to 70% of them will be able to maintain a normal rhythm at about a year. Um, certain drugs are contraindicated in the setting of certain disease states, especially in people who have any sort of blockages in the arteries supplying their heart or history of heart attack or heart failure, then we're a little bit more limited in terms of the, the drugs that we can uh, give. Now, the other option as I've referred to is catheter ablation. This is a more complex ablation than simply burning the AV node. And the goal here is to render one free of atrial fibrillation. The way this works is we do something called a transeptal puncture. So this comes back to my disclosures. I mentioned of that a company, company Bayless, they make um, tools to help us uh, traverse this septum. Uh, and the, the point of that is to burn or freeze the opening, the ostia, or just outside these veins that come from the lungs, hence pulmonary, into the left upper chamber. And we know empirically, if we can, oh, and I should mention, these veins have little sleeves of muscle that conduct electricity. So we can, if we put a catheter like this, uh, what we call a lasso catheter that has the, these electrodes on it, into the pulmonary vein, we can measure signals that are conducted from uh, the, the, the rest of the atrium. And it's been demonstrated that if one can electrically isolate those veins, generally by burning around them or delivering this, what's called a cryo balloon, essentially freezing the tissue surrounding them, you can free the majority, not everyone, but the majority of people with atrial fibrillation. Now, how does that work? What, what, is the, what do these pulmonary veins have to do with AFib? That's actually a, a, an area of ongoing study, but there are several uh, potential explanations, and they may vary depending on the individual person. So this approach was really first described by clinicians in Bordeaux, France, that noticed that some people with intermittent atrial fibrillation seem to have the rhythm triggered by these early beats called premature atrial contractions originating inside the pulmonary veins. So the first procedures, they were going in to the pulmonary vein, they were trying to hunt down these rare early beats and burn them. And they, could, they showed that that could work. But the problem was uh, then other premature atrial contractions would show up elsewhere in other pulmonary veins and burning inside the vein could lead to narrowing of the vein, which led to problems with shortness of breath, et cetera. 
that subsequently led to this idea of, oh, maybe we just need to electrically isolate all the veins and none of those triggers can get out. So that's one potential explanation. Another, there is a, what's called a Cox maze procedure developed by a, a surgeon um, with the theory that atrial fibrillation represents these partially reentrant wavelets that require a certain amount of tissue to perpetuate and to be sustained, such that if you cut up the tissue, cut up the atria, you, you created lines of scar or electrical block, these wavelets couldn't coexist and therefore normal rhythm would take over. And it's possible that with our ablation, we're also kind of uh, making the atria a bit smaller, providing less room for these wavelets. And then third, there's this idea that maybe we're influencing the autonomic tone that I referred to earlier. Um, specifically, there are nerve fiber bunches uh, where it's mainly the vagal input, the anti-adrenaline input on the heart that happen to sit right next to and right outside where we tend to burn or freeze when we're trying to get rid of uh, atrial fibrillation and isolate the pulmonary veins. And indeed, sometimes with these procedures, as we're burning, we'll see the heart slow way down because we're irritating that vagal bundle of nerves called a ganglia. And it's not uncommon after an atrial ablation that individuals' heart rates go up a bit. Uh, and we think, again, that's because we've disrupted this vagal uh, atrial connection. And there's some evidence also that if you activate those ganglia, especially in animal models, you can induce atrial fibrillation. So it may be that one of these things is active in, in, in various patients or it's a combination. Uh, again, uh, we, the, the, the point is that we know empirically in randomized trials that this does tend to work. This ablation procedure is the most effective means to maintain normal rhythm. Uh, in studies that have compared this to drugs, it tends to win out. Um, interestingly, it's especially useful in heart failure patients uh, with some evidence, uh, especially those whose hearts are weak rather than simply stiff, with some evidence from at least one randomized trial that ablation in those patients can actually reduce mortality. The success rate is probably on average 60, maybe 80%, perhaps as high as 90%. Repeat procedures probably do increase that success rate. The risks are generally low altogether, three to 5%, but importantly, the great majority of that three to 5% are things that either take care of themselves, they're not gonna result in permanent disability. So the risk of death, permanent disability, something that's really gonna be had, uh, negatively uh, life altering is substantially less uh, than 1%. So I have become much more sanguine about this procedure um, the last time I spoke about this in 2015, I was certainly doing this procedure. I've been doing it since I was a fellow, um, you know, for uh, which was now I started my fellowship 18 years ago. I've been doing it ever since. And since uh, I started as on the faculty 16 years ago, uh, have been performing this. But I've tended to err on the side of being quite conservative. Uh, I tend to approach things uh, with some healthy skepticism uh, and will say that the tools have really improved. They've made the procedure, I think, safer, more effective, faster. And I've seen more and more anecdotal success that has accompanied randomized trial data demonstrating uh, good results with this in, in uh, select patients. Um, it's not necessarily indicated for everyone. And, and again, happy to 
uh, talk more about that in the, the Q&A. The best candidates are those that are, those that are symptomatic and especially those that are symptomatic and that have failed drugs. The, the individuals who are um, not the optimal candidates tend to be those with a very long-standing atrial fibrillation for years and years. Sometimes it can help those individuals, but we know the success rate is not as good. Older patients tend to experience more risk factors. So once we get into the mid, certainly the 80s uh, and definitely mid 80s, 90s, I, I would tend to shy away more uh, from this procedure. Okay, and now uh, very important to talk about preventing thromboembolism. And uh, this means, by the way, it's not just stroke, which is what we mainly talk about with atrial fibrillation appropriately because it's so important. But remember, there's no reason these blood clots necessarily just go to the brain. There's now evidence that people with AFib are at high risk for heart attack, worsening kidney disease. It may also not just be these big clots that lead to a stroke, but perhaps smaller, tiny clots that aren't uh, manifest in any way in an, uh, in an immediate sense, but over a long period of time may lead to dementia. Uh, and really this can lead to harm to various organs and prevention of thromboembolism is meant to prevent all of these things. And the, the mainstay there is to use what we call anticoagulants or a particular type of blood thinner, which are highly effective in preventing these complications. Randomized trials have shown less death with them as well as substantially less stroke and these other complications. Now we use the term anticoagulant uh, mainly uh, in distinction to what are called antiplatelet drugs such as aspirin or Plavix. Um, those are also blood thinners and that they block platelets. These blood clots can be can have within them platelets and clotting factors. Certain types of blood clots, especially those, for example, that form in coronary arteries from a ruptured cholesterol plaque that lead to a heart attack, those are tend to be quite platelet rich, and therefore drugs like aspirin or Plavix are useful for that. The sort of clot that forms in the setting of atrial fibrillation seems to be much less platelet related and more related to these clotting factors that these anticoagulants block. Therefore, aspirin and Plavix don't work particularly well to prevent all these complications in, in uh, atrial fibrillation. Interestingly, with these new anticoagulants, the risk of bleeding, however, is about the same as with uh, aspirin, for example. So the first line drugs we're talking about here, which are also referred to as NOACs for novel oral anticoagulants, novel as opposed to the main, older mainstay of warfarin, or DOACs for uh, direct oral anticoagulants include Apixaban, dabigatran, rivaroxaban, and adoxaban. I've listed the trade, na uh, trade names uh, there as well, Eliquis, Pradaxa, Zeralto, and Cyvesa. Warfarin is also an option. Warfarin is also called Coumadin. It does work well, has been studied in large randomized trials, but is not considered second line to the, the drugs listed above due to inconvenience since you have to constantly check uh, for uh, how thin the blood is and potentially adjust the dose. And there's a higher risk of bleeding inside the head with warfarin or Coumadin compared to these uh, newer drugs. There are some circumstances where the newer drugs, again, those listed above, are not indicated in the setting of atrial fibrillation, such as when someone has what's called mitral stenosis, which is uh, almost exclusively caused by rheumatic heart disease. That's a narrowing of the mitral valve or uh, mechanical heart valves or Sometimes people do develop clots while on these 
perhaps more gentle uh, noax or doax, and then we give warfarin and can then dial up uh, how thin the blood is. I just wanted to address some common concerns uh, that seem to come up fairly frequently and that I hear from patients, especially when I first introduce uh, the recommendation to start one of these. Uh, one is, well, they're new, they haven't been studied enough. Uh, my response is they've been around now for uh, a decade. In the randomized trials alone included tens of thousands of people. And now we have data from literally millions of people in the real world, all with very consistent findings of the benefits of those drugs. Another concern is, well, they're not reversible, but there are now antidotes uh, available. And frankly, even before the antidotes, we could control the bleeding. These are gentle enough that we are now performing procedures on uninterrupted NOAC or DOAC. So oftentimes when we put in a pacemaker, certainly pretty much every time we do an AFib ablation, uh, including puncturing the veins, puncturing the septum between the top two chambers, we're doing it in people who have taken their, their Eliquis or Xeralto that morning. In general, when indicated, the risk of not taking them exceeds the risk of taking them. Uh, there's a saying that I learned from an older investigator that I really like, which is patients don't call you in the middle of the night to thank you for not having a stroke. So sometimes it's too easy to imagine why I'm doing this thing, it's going to lead to bleeding. Uh, and it's harder to fully appreciate the absence of something happening. Uh, but of course, we can all recognize that's not necessarily rational per se. Uh, um, just because it's easier to imagine doesn't actually mean it's more probable. Uh, and the data clearly show uh, that uh, generally these tend to lead to better outcomes. Now, I mentioned properly selected people. What do I mean by that? So even among people with atrial fibrillation, there's clearly a spectrum of risk of stroke and thromboembolism. And we use this scoring system called the, the CHADS-VASC. We, we used to use something called the chads uh, score. Uh, but in general, younger patients and those without any other cardiovascular risk factors, so no high blood pressure, no diabetes, no history of stroke, no heart failure, may be at sufficiently low risk that it makes sense to not prescribe a blood thinner, probably especially so in those who have uh, fairly rare uh, atrial fibrillation. I will say that given the convenience of these newer drugs and how well they work, the field seems to be moving a little bit more towards erring on the side of generally recommending them. So uh, over the, in the next few slides, I'll move to this kind of new way to approach atrial fibrillation that has to do with prevention, uh, which of course is always preferable uh, rather than uh, delivering some therapy for a disease that someone has to first suffer, uh, not to mention the hassle and the risks of the various therapies. And I will say it's been very interesting when I was a medical student and even a resident, we didn't think about preventing atrial fibrillation. We didn't think about preventing electrical problems. We certainly thought of that when it came to heart attacks, reducing cholesterol, stopping smoking, but atrial fibrillation was just bad luck. It just happened to people. Uh, and more and more, we're starting to recognize that perhaps, at least in many, probably not everyone, especially those, for example, who have strong genes uh, that uh, make them susceptible, but in many, we might be able to prevent the disease and also use lifestyle factors uh, to reduce the risk of recurrence. And in fact, um, these are uh, figures from on the left, the American Heart Association, which now considers lifestyle risk factor management one of the pillars of treating atrial fibrillation, along with anticoagulation, rate control, and rhythm control. 
And on the right here, this is a um, statement uh, regarding research priorities from the NIH, the NHLBI. I was fortunate to be part of this group related to secondary prevention of atrial fibrillation, meaning that once it occurs, what are the things we can do to actually prevent it from happening with a, a major focus on uh, lifestyle? One of the leaders in this uh, has been a colleague, uh, Prash Sanders, who's in Adelaide, Australia, where they do a lot of ablations and they had a long waiting list. And the story goes that they had all these patients that were waiting a really long time for their ablation. And they wanted to help them, wanted to figure out what can we do in the meantime. And they ended up examining the effect of fitness training and of weight loss, especially in obese patients. And this was a now very famous randomized trial where individuals are randomly assigned to a weight reduction and cardiometabolic risk factor management strategy versus just letting them be. And they showed that indeed, if they could lose weight and become more fit, that their atrial fibrillation burden went down uh, substantially. Now, alcohol has long been considered a possible trigger for atrial fibrillation. This was a meta-analysis now over a decade ago. Um, and you can see that the, the findings in individual studies uh, with you know, equivocal would be where this uh, solid line of one is favoring a relationship between alcohol and AFib uh, would be on the right side of this line. One of these studies um, was mine from actually uh, some work I did as a fellow at UCSF, but the general conclusion is or was, yeah, those who tend to drink more tend to be at a higher risk of atrial fibrillation, which then leads to the question, well, if you've been drinking, is the cat out of the bag or can you still influence the risk for AFib? So we published this study where we, we leveraged um, a large uh, prospective NIH-funded cohort, and we looked at the people who used to drink and then quit and found that those people actually did have a lower risk of AFib compared to those that continued to drink. And this uh, was one of several studies that the first author here, Alex Voskobojnik, who we had the, the privilege to help uh, train in his cardiac electrophysiology training, he's Australian, um, a very clever study that he did, and he's kindly referenced the slide I just showed as, as one of uh, the inspirations for this study. So this was part of his PhD uh, with another electrophysiologist named Peter Kissler, uh, in Australia, where they took patients with atrial fibrillation who drank pretty heavily, and they randomly assigned them to try to convince them, try to stop drinking, versus didn't really tell them anything, continue to drink. And those randomly assigned to abstinence uh, exhibited a substantially reduced risk of recurrence uh, and uh, atrial fibrillation burden. Now, what are the mechanisms here? What's going on with alcohol? There's this common conception that alcohol is good for the heart. And there is some evidence that alcohol, when consumed in moderation, meaning about a drink a day, there may be beneficial cardiovascular effects. There could still be a redu reduced risk of AFib. This is very controversial, really unknown. Happy to talk about this in the Q&A. We're trying to get a major study, study funded here when, when consumed, uh, not consumed in excess. Um, but there's also evidence that in people who already have AFib, that even a drink might be enough. I'll tell you about that a little bit in the, uh, later. Now, the protective effects tend to be attributed to maybe beneficial effects on lipids. Maybe uh, it thins the blood a little bit, which helps uh, prevent heart attack. Uh, but the mechanism by which uh, alcohol may lead to atrial fibrillation has largely been not understood. We did a randomized study where we took patients 
undergoing AFib ablation. So they had catheters in their heart so we could measure the electrical activity and characterize the electrical activity inside the atrium. And we randomly assigned them to an IV infusion of alcohol titrated to a breath alcohol concentration of 0.08% versus a double blind masked placebo. And we found that in the alcohol group, the refractory period of the pulmonary vein electrical activity became substantially shorter only when people were exposed to alcohol, not in the placebo group. And that shortening of atrial recovery is something that is thought to render the atria more prone to fibrillate. If you imagine those multiple wavelets I described, more of them can coexist if the, if the uh, tissue is recovering more rapidly. And we thought it was especially interesting that this was found on the pulmonary veins, which are the target uh, of our uh, uh, ablation. We also showed in ambulatory people with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation that if we put sensors on them, uh, continuously to monitor them for their heart rhythm, as well as an alcohol sensor, that when they consumed alcohol, their risk of a discrete atrial fibrillation event went up substantially in the next few hours. So this was really the first time that these acute effects were shown. All the previous data had to do with long-term effects, alcohol as a, as a risk factor for the development of the disease or the burden of the disease. But this was the first evidence that um, very, um, there may be immediate effects of alcohol on AFib. The hopeful thing is, if that's true, that also suggests that if you stop drinking alcohol, then fairly immediately, you're going to reduce your risk for a given uh, AFib episode. And it was very gratifying to see that that study I just described was covered in the New York Times. And they talked about very generally alcohol affecting the heart, even though it was about atrial fibrillation. Whereas in the past, I think, again, all the alcohol heart disease uh, media attention has focused on, on heart attacks, as well as um, mech, uh, strategies to prevent the disease. Just to cover a couple of other uh, lifestyle factors. So smoke, sm uh, along with many other horrible things that can happen from smoking tobacco, there's now evidence uh, smoking also does increase the risk for atrial fibrillation. Uh, we showed that actually secondhand smoke can be a risk factor for the development of atrial fibrillation. And then we just recently published this study uh, looking at records from uh, more than 23 million Californians seeking healthcare and found that uh, various substances, methamphetamine, cocaine, opioids, and uh, even cannabis actually increase the risk for atrial fibrillation. You may be lamenting, oh man, I, I can't drink alcohol, I can't uh, use cannabis. Or Dr. Marcus is saying, so telling me I shouldn't use cocaine. That's all uh, fairly pretty true. What about my coffee? Don't take away my coffee. So I do have better news uh, here. So there is this conventional wisdom that coffee leads to arrhythmias and there's even professional society guidance without really substantive data that warn against caffeine consumption to avoid arrhythmias. So we were interested in looking at this and just looked at common early heartbeats this is also in, this is in a population-based NIH-funded study, and we could find no relationship between how much coffee one said they tended to consume and the frequency of those uh, early beats. And then more recently, we published uh, a study using data from the UK Biobank. This is from several hundred thousand participants in the, the UK, and actually found that those who drank more coffee experienced a lower risk 
of various arrhythmias. And that lower risk was largely driven by a lower risk of atrial fibrillation. Now these are observational data, not randomized data. We tried to address that by performing something called a Mendelian randomization study. So we looked at caffeine-related genetic variants that are at least ostensibly somewhat randomly assigned. And there, we didn't find a heightened risk of atrial fibrillation, but we also didn't find a, a lower risk uh, using these uh, genetic markers as kind of surrogates for random assignment uh, to at least caffeinated uh, products. I will end here with these conclusions and then look forward to uh, answering, uh, hearing what you're curious about and, and hopefully answering your questions. So in conclusion, atrial fibrillation is very common. We make the diagnosis using a electrocardiogram, also called an ECG or EKG, not to be confused by the way with a echocardiogram, an echocardiogram, that's the ultrasound of the heart. Uh, and that electrocardiogram needs to be overread by a healthcare professional. We shouldn't rely on smartwatches by themselves to make that diagnosis. Smartwatches can identify those with atrial fibrillation, but we still need to figure out how to optimally use them in the general public. They perhaps have uh, the greatest utility among those who already have a diagnosis of the disease. The goals in treating atrial fibrillation are to improve quality of life, to avoid adverse remodeling, weakening, enlargement of the heart, and to prevent stroke and other thromboemboli. Uh, there are many effective options to address each of these, often working in concert. And now we recognize that staying physically fit, especially among those who are uh, obese, as well as minimizing alcohol and avoiding tobacco and illicit drugs may all reduce the risk of atrial fibrillation. When it comes to coffee, I'm not uh, recommending anyone start to consume coffee because there's no randomized controlled trial evidence for that. However, if you enjoy your coffee, then I certainly would not uh, discourage uh, its consumption. Um, and uh, that is all I have. Thank you so much uh, for your attention. I hope this has uh, been interesting and useful. Great talk, Dr. Marcus. Thank you. Um, so we'll go through some of the questions here uh, in the Q&A. There's a number of questions uh, regarding the risks of some of these procedures that you described, uh, both with regard to atrial fibrillation, ablation, and with device implantation. So maybe you could just briefly touch on what are some of the risks of atrial fibrillation, ablation? What are some of the risks of poking a hole to perform this procedure, maybe two holes in the heart? Um, and uh, any problems with, with these leads uh, in uh, uh, in the ventricle of the heart and traversing the valve when we put in a pacemaker defibrillator? Okay, uh, great question. So the most common complication of the ablation procedure is where we go into the veins. And that can result in various issues. Again, that makes up maybe two to 3% of all of those complications, perhaps even as high as 4%. That rate, by the way, is probably now lower. We used to do this based purely on kind of what we knew about anatomy. We would feel the pulse of the artery and we would go next to it to get the vein. Now we use ultrasound. So we're visualizing the vessel as we go in. We use very small needles, what are called micropuncture needles and, and very small wires to initially access the vein. Usually if that's a problem, it will manifest as a collection of blood uh, or even a connection between an artery and a vein Many times those things just take care of themselves. If that becomes an issue, usually the, if the scenario is not generally the patient is unstable, but rather they go home, they say, yeah, my, my groin, it, the pain there is not getting better, or they notice it's swollen. 
we get an ultrasound, we consult our vascular surgery colleagues. They will often say, just keep an eye on it, get another ultrasound in a few weeks. Once in a while, about less than 1% of the time, they'll actually have to go in and, and fix it. In terms of other complications, so the poking of the hole between the septum, between the right and left atrium that we do deliberately, uh, that uh, seals up in about, we think it takes about a month. And in fact, we published a paper a long time ago showing that when you do a repeat ablation, getting back across a little bit more difficult so that um, it heals up really very well. There is a very interesting phenomenon uh, that hasn't been very well studied, but it's been pretty extensively described that in that first few weeks, some people can develop migraines, especially visual migraines. And there's also evidence that people with migraines may more often have a little hole there. So we all have little holes there when we're in the womb. And then when we're born, there's a little flap uh, that closes. And in about 20 to 30% of the population, there's still a little hole there. Um, we don't necessarily go through that exact spot, but very close to it when we do our transeptal puncture. And these, so the idea of this, these migraines, the mechanism that's purported is there's some substance that normally is filtered by the lungs that comes back to the right side of the heart. And when there's a little hole there, it goes directly to the left side and that causes the migraine. And interestingly, those symptoms uh, reliably go away after three or four weeks, um, demonstrating that, that we think that that hole is closing. Now, one of the other more feared complications that remains um, relatively common, maybe as high as 1%, is a uh, unintentional hole in the heart, um, which usually um, manifests as bleeding outside the heart, which patients undergoing these procedures are at high risk for because we're giving very potent blood thinning because we're on the left side of the heart and we wanna avoid any blood clots forming there. Um, should that occur, the solution that works um, the great majority of the time is we enter in just under the rib cage to drain that blood. That hole usually just seals, seals up again and the key is just draining the blood from outside from the heart uh, or, or getting into the sac that lines the heart. Usually those patients have to go um, to, they spend the night with a catheter sitting in there and that can be uncomfortable. Uh, but the great majority of the time, uh, that's less of an issue. Another uh, final complication I'll mention that is really the worst complication um, and is extraordinarily rare. And it's so rare that it's actually quite hard to study. To my knowledge, we have not seen this. We have not seen this among any of our patients ablated at UCSF, although we certainly care for these patients at UCSF that are transferred from elsewhere, where a hole forms between the esophagus, the swallowing tube, which as I described is directly behind the heart and the back of the left atrium. And one of the things that is especially uh, pernicious about this or, or makes it really difficult is that that doesn't form immediately. It, it comes up three weeks later and can present in unusual ways. And so we uh, take several measures to make sure we really try to avoid that. These days, uh, and different colleagues do some different things. I've been using a device uh, where we put down actually a device that cools the esophagus and prevents it from getting heating, heated up uh, while we're burning the, the, the back of the heart. To quickly move on to the pacemaker question again, I, I will defer most of that to Dr. Doolin's talk in hopes of motivating many of you to attend that. Um, but uh, it, um, 
most of the time, it's not an issue. The heart is unbelievably forgiving of many of the things we do, but it can sometimes lead to um, a, a difficulty of that tricuspid valve that we traverse with the lead that goes into the lower chamber closing, and that uh, can be an issue sometimes, usually over a long period of time. How about uh, cardioversion? There's a question on that as well. Yes. So the risks of cardioversion are very low. Um, the most, uh, I mean, it is an incredibly safe procedure. It's been around for a very long time. The most common uh, adverse consequence of it are skin burns, which again are mitigated by the nature of the pads we use. We see that very rarely. The other um, risks would be shocking the heart into another dangerous rhythm. And that can broadly take two forms. One is we can shock into a dangerously fast rhythm. There is uh, something that we do to synchronize the shock uh, with the timing of the way that the heart depolarizes to prevent that. But in that worst case scenario, the solution to that is essentially to shock the heart again. There is also a risk you shock the heart of someone in atrial fibrillation and their normal sinus rhythm comes back very slowly. And then we would give medicines to speed up the heart. We can also use those same pads actually to pace the heart uh, from outside if needed. Great. Uh, a couple of questions regarding uh, stroke and atrial fibrillation, including any concept of how, or any idea of how long it takes for one of these clots to form in the heart. And then uh, with catheter ablation, do we have any idea of whether the ablation procedure long-term provides any um, uh, helps impact the risk of stroke or lowers the risk of stroke for those individuals that have an ablation? Uh, yeah, two um, great questions. I'll, I'll answer the um, uh, second one first, I think. The honest answer is we don't know. There's some controversy in the field. Um, the data, there is observational data. So there's not yet randomized controlled trial data, which, and we try to rely on the randomized data mainly because that's really the only way to fully um, uh, mitigate against confounders. Um, but there's some observational data that those who undergo uh, ablation may experience a lower risk for stroke. Some will sometimes then stop anticoagulants. Um, in my practice, if someone's stroke risk based on their other factors is sufficiently high, even if all the evidence is they have just a normal rhythm, I tend to favor continuing the blood thinner. If their stroke risk isn't terribly high, I'll have a discussion with them, uh, sometimes obtain a monitor to make sure there's no asymptomatic AFib and in kind of uh, what, we, what we call shared decision-making with the patient, uh, I will sometimes uh, stop, uh, stop the blood thinner. I usually give it about a year though, to make sure it's gone. Then there are the people who, as I mentioned, are so low risk of stroke that it's not clear that they would even need a blood thinner. And then those folks, I, I do often stop it. Sorry, what was the first question? Uh, uh, how long does it take to form a clot? Or presumably once an individual in atrial fibrillation. Uh, thank you. So um, there is a convention uh, that we think it takes about 48 hours at a minimum. Um, however, there are cases that have been described where the evidence is that atrial fibrillation has been present for a shorter period of time. Uh, and yet strokes can occur. Uh, interestingly, cardioverting the heart heightens the risk for stroke, uh, mainly because after cardioversion, the uh, moving from atrial fibrillation to sinus rhythm, that seems to stun 
the left atrial appendage and, and make the blood even more stagnant. And that is not a property of the elect electricity we deliver. It's a property more of the conversion from the atrial fibrillation to normal rhythm. So whenever we do a cardioversion, especially if it's been more than uh, two days, we always make sure someone has to be on uninterrupted anticoagulation for at least ideally a month um, afterwards. Now, it's also important to mention, and I, I tell my patients this frequently, that um, the, we don't think, just, just as I described, that it may not always be the AFib that's directly causal to the clot. It's also not the case if you take someone, for example, that has paroxysmal atrial fibrillation that now they're in AFib. Oh no, now I'm going to have a stroke. It doesn't work like that. And I, I don't want people to be alarmed when they're in atrial fibrillation that suddenly now at that time, they're at this very high risk for stroke. I think it's more helpful and, and more reflective of the reality to think of it more like treating high blood pressure or treating diabetes that you are the reason to take a blood thinner in the setting of atrial fibrillation, even when it's coming and going, is to reduce the risk of stroke over years and years. So if you take the, you know, everyone with atrial fibrillation um, and they're not, not on anticoagulation, on average, their stroke risk is about 5% in a year. It's not 5% for a given AFib episode. It's certainly not 20, 30%. It's we're talking a, a longer time frame, so it's important to 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 understand. As I mentioned earlier, these are not emergencies when you have an AFib episode. You don't need to rush to worry about it. It's treating it over the long period of time. Uh, a question came up about alcohol, and I think this is on a lot of people's minds. And of course, you've done a lot of research in this area. Uh, how do we weigh? So we we there's some evidence that heavy alcohol, I would say there's pretty good evidence that heavy alcohol consumption increases the risk of atrial fibrillation. But how do we weigh mild alcohol consumption, given that there is perhaps some data to suggest that it maybe reduces things like uh, heart attacks or some form of cancer? How do we weigh sort of the overall risks and benefits of it when atrial fibrillation is, of course, a problem, but there's all these other things that we have to worry about? Fantastic question. Um, we don't know. Uh, and it's, I think, very important. Um, there's even some evidence as I may have alluded to. So there's one big observational study that suggested that in people without AFib, those who drink just one drink a day have a higher risk of AFib compared to, the, compared to those that don't drink. That was from um, I believe, uh, continental Europe. I, can't, I think Germany, but I, I, I don't remember the country. There's other data from the UK that people who drink one drink a day may have a lower risk of atrial fibrillation. And as uh, Dr. Doolin mentioned, there's evidence that people drink a drink a day. There's even randomized trial evidence may have a lower risk of diabetes. They may have a lower risk of leukemia, lymphoma. They may have a higher risk of breast cancer, colon cancer. It, there's a lot of uncertainty there. So we've actually, uh, I, I mentioned this, I think earlier, we have, we're trying to get a major study funded that would actually compare a drink a day to near abstinence. Um, a colleague of mine uh, in, at, at Harvard, Ken Mukamal, who is also is really a leader in alcohol-related research, and I have um, keep trying for this one grant mechanism that would work for this. Uh, unfortunately, and we don't want industry funding. We want this to be completely unbiased. Um, so we're trying. It's a great question. We think it's incredibly important. Um, and um, yeah, we're trying to we're trying to do that study. We would love to do that study, and we think it could be 
super informative and helpful to countless numbers of people. I, I would mention, you know, more than two drinks a day, almost certainly harmful, even when it comes to heart attack. And, and we've shown that uh, when it comes to all these outcomes. Um, so I tend to recommend to my patients without atrial fibrillation, I tell them, I don't know. I would generally recommend not consuming more than a drink in a 24 hour period um, on average. Have you noticed that some of these medications over time become less efficacious? And what happens to the patient who's maybe failed medications, failed a catheter ablation procedure? Is there anything wrong? Yeah, so treating atrial fibrillation is often very iterative. It's really a trial and error sort of thing. And I, I really try to also emphasize to my patients that their quality of life is so important because I know it can often happen that we prescribe a medicine patients don't feel well on that medicine, but they say, well, my doctor said I got to take this medicine. So I, I always encourage them, please let me know if you're not feeling well, the whole point of this is to help you feel better. Now, the, the anticoagulants, they don't necessarily help you feel better, say, hopefully, you know, preventing a stroke, but day to day, that's not their purpose. The day to day of the drugs to suppress the AFib, they really should be helping you feel better. If they don't, you need to try something else. And yes, it's interesting that for some reason, so first of all, some people's given atrial fibrillation just never is susceptible to a given drug. Sometimes a given drug will work for years and years, and then the AFib comes back despite that. And then we go, it's iterative. So we can then try a different drug. We can then try ablation. Sometimes you try ablation, patient does really well for a couple of years and the AFib comes back, then you try a drug. So as I say, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a fairly constant trial and error. I say fairly because there are some patients who are on the same drug for decades, never have any more AFib, or we do a catheter ablation, no drugs, and they're free of AFib for, for many years. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.